Kom nandi jou koepelapa. Which you then say is lekker om hier te wees. And when I say dis lekker om hier te wees, then you say it's nice to be here. Uh, that's sort of like a greeting out in different places, is that not so? And so uh, it's really great to be with you this morning and thank you for joining us. Uh, we want to continue this morning in a short series. Nate kicked us off with the Children's Church a while ago, looking at why we believe. And in a sense, we recognized on that day that there's a sense of the powerful personal story that plays a compelling part of why we believe. But there are other reasons. And so we looked, for example, in Scripture last week why we believe one of the reasons is why we can't live without meaning and purpose. Literally, that, those few lines from that booklet remind us that we don't have to try and find a meaningful middle out of a meaningless beginning and a meaningless end. That literally, you don't have to try and make meaning in the moment. Rather, the moment is given meaning by the God who made you. And then we come today and we want to just look at one of the reasons why we believe is quite simply this. We can't live without justice and mercy. We can't live without justice and mercy. There's a verse very famous in one of the prophets, Micah, in the Old Testament, and talks about, in a sense, it puts it on us as, we often receive this as, because this is something we've got to do, that uh, Micah 6 verse 8, He has shown you, people, He's shown you what's good, what's needed, what does He want, talking of God, to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. Today I want to show you that those three things are so incredibly tightly woven together. They're not just instructions. They actually meet on the cross of Jesus. Justice and mercy and humility meet in the person and in the body of Jesus. They become and He becomes the reason we love justice. We do justice and love mercy. He becomes the reason that it's even possible to talk about a relationship with God and walking humbly with God. You see, at the heart of our faith lies the weight of the life and the words of Jesus and the meaning of His story. So I want to go to that Good Friday story in Luke 19, as recorded by Luke. Some of us had the joy of going to the Genevray service last night, the service of the shadows, and literally being read through in a reflective way these stories. Maybe we should just pause before we read this because it's so significant. Luke 19, 28. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that's the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him. And they twisted together a crown of thorns and they set it on him. And then they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. And again and again they struck him on the head and on, with a staff and they spat on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage, so-called, to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. And then they led him out to crucify him. And a certain man from Cyrene, Simon, 
the father of Alexander and Rufus. By the way, we know this is a, an eyewitness account to people who actually knew what was going on because we have no idea who Alexander and Rufus is, but he wouldn't have included it if Alexander and Rufus weren't well-known throughout the church. And people were able to go, oh, that's where the connection is. Eyewitness detail. He was passing by on his way from the country and they forced him to carry the cross. And they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. And then they offered him my, uh, wine mixed with myrrh, but he didn't take it. And then just four words. And they crucified him. This Lord who left heaven, became human, lived among us, one of the most inhumane, long-lasting, relentlessly suffering deaths. Mark says they crucified him at nine in the morning and he was still praying to God, crying out at three in the afternoon. They crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what they would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. And the written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And they crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you're going to destroy the temple and build it in three days? Well, then come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests, teachers of the law, mocked him among themselves. Oh, he saved others. But he can't even save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. See, they believed that the king would never suffer. They believed the king would save himself. And those crucified with him also heaped insults in him. And at noon darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, Calling Elijah, someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, more eyewitness detail, offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. But with a loud cry, we know from John's gospel, he gathered his strength, the last physical strength that he had left in his body. And he shouted, it is finished or complete, or done, and then breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the Son of God, the man who crucified him. Surely this man was the Son of God. Why do we believe? Now, you know the answer, right? Because of 
Jesus, yes, you know, in church the answer is always Jesus. There we go. Okay, why do we believe? Because of this extraordinary historical critical evidence about this man who lived 2,000 years ago. A beautiful and remarkable life. And today we see a brutal and unimaginable death. And according to historical evidence, it was resurrected to new and indestructible life. But we also believe because of the words he spoke that gave meaning to these moments. And the words I want to look at this morning is this cry, my God, my God, why did you, why have you forsaken me? After six hours, feeling utterly forsaken and abandoned, he dies. What do these words speak of and why do we believe this morning i want to argue that one of the reasons i believe is that i cannot live without justice i cannot live watching a world mess itself up and people keep on doing wrong and causing chaos and nobody does anything about it the world only makes sense when there's some measure of justice and if the injustice grows and grows and grows, eventually I can become so resentful that I choose injustice as my way too. Is there another way to bring justice? Does justice matter? One of the re absolutely. One of the reasons I believe is that it's because these words speak of justice. But these words also speak of a severe mercy. You see, the backstory, the biblical backstory to these words is incredible. Not only is Jesus quoting the first line of Psalm 22 in his home language, Aramaic, but he's also completely identifying himself with the human condition of, and reality of fallenness and brokenness and being subjected to evil and sin we were reminded of this amazing good news last week that God has made us for him to know him walk with him reveal him even represent him on the earth and this makes sense of our everyday lives it injects meaning into the moments and helps us live but Genesis 3 shows that not just that creation but that literally evil enters the world through the sin of our first parents who believed the lie that they could find meaning and purpose and right and wrong and good and evil without God. And they believed the lie that they could be like God and not just reveal Him, but displace Him. And Genesis 4 then shows that this evil, this sin, once, as Cain was warned, crouching at the door, now enters the house and gains mastery of the human race. Now, this biblical backstory collides head on with the story in our culture in which right and wrong and justice and all the rest of it essentially has been boiled down to what really works for me. Someone sent me a meme this week and uh, they, they said, and, and forgive me, I'm not knocking a justice movement, but they were, they were saying, woke is the person who can find any injustice perpetrated by anyone else other than themselves. We become so wired for injustice that we seem to have missed 
that there must be something fundamental that achieves both justice and mercy. And if morality is simply that now which works for me, there's no longer absolutes of right and wrong. It's just relative. And it's no longer even just become moral relativity. It's now that the truth itself is up for, uh, up for grabs. Whatever you really believe can be true for you. Well, hello, reality is what you walk into or what hits you when you step in front of a bus. I don't care what you believe. If that bus is moving, moving, the thing that hits you is called truth, is called reality. And you don't get to decide whether that bus is made of jelly or not. It's made of steel and glass and it will hurt you. You see, truth and reality are not things we get to decide. And if that's true of truth, then it's also true of morality. We don't have the freedom to decide that we will kick God off and, you know, say, God, we're done with you now. We're taking your place. The world is not just a rejected its need for forgiveness. It has become obsessed in its place with therapy. And we live in a world that has not just rejected the idea of guilt, which is legal. But now we talk just about having to deal with our shame, which is a social construct that the world puts on us so that we feel bad about ourselves. We're told we don't need forgiveness for sin. We certainly don't need to repent and we certainly don't need to stop it. The only change you really need is to stop feeling ashamed of your choices. And as long as nobody is harmed, you're free to do what you want. The problem is none of us can agree on the definition of nobody is harmed. See, the moment you agree on that definition, what have you got? You've got an absolute again. You've got right and wrong. You've got justice and injustice. You've got actual guilt, not just shame. See, God's view of our problem is very different. Listen to the prophet Isaiah in excerpts from chapter 59. He describes the need for our salvation. He says this, So justice is far from us. Righteousness does not reach us. We look for light, but all is darkness. We look for brightness, but we grope in deep shadows. We like the blind, groping along a wall, feeling our way like people who have no eyes. At midday we stumble as if it were twilight. Among the strong we are like the dead. For our offenses are many in your sight, God, and our sins testify, legal language, against us. Our offenses are ever with us, and it's time we acknowledge our iniquities, our rebellion and treachery against the Lord, turning our backs on God, inciting revolt and oppression, uttering lies that our hearts have conceived. And so justice lies driven back. Righteousness stands at a distance. Truth has stumbled in the streets. This was written two and a half thousand years ago. The conditions we face are not new. Honesty cannot enter. Understatement. The Lord looked and was displeased. For there was no justice. He saw there was no one. He was appalled. No one to intervene. So his own arm achieved salvation for him. His own righteousness sustained him. And then verse 20 says, And so a redeemer will come to Zion, meaning the people of God, to those who repent of their sins, declares the Lord. 
I'm going pretty heavy here. I know that. But society and culture has been going so easy on us that we don't even know how to make meaning of the death of Jesus. So how will God intervene? Does he just go, oh, well, it doesn't matter. I'm nice. We've taken the word good, for God is truly good, and we just edited good to mean nice. God is sweet. No, God is just. God is utterly good. And he will not accept a world in which truth is the casualty and justice lies smashed and righteousness is forsaken in its streets. And so then does the extraordinary logic of the cross. John Stott, preacher and theologian, explains it. He says the essence of sin is that we human beings are substituting ourselves for God. Where God was, we put us. And so the essence of salvation is God will substitute himself for us. Where we have fallen to So to the lowest, most broken, most damaged place, a cross on Calvary that we could possibly imagine, comes, yes, the true man of true man, but also the true God of true God, Jesus Christ willingly. You see, we put ourselves where God deserves to be, the one who gives the understanding of good and evil and right and wrong and truth and justice. We put ourselves where God ought to be. And so God puts himself where we deserve to be. That is the logic. On the cross, Jesus takes our place. Now, I'm going to need some help. I'm going to need some volunteers. I've got a lovely, pretty uh, assistant who's stepping forward right now. But I need three volunteers. Okay, Cindy's going to give you something to pull on. There we go. Okay, so what do we have here? Maybe, maybe you guys need to read each other. Juliet, why don't you read? Blame him. Tell him what he's got all over. Okay, hypocrisy, fraud, sin, unkind, perjury, corruption, neglect, theft. Perfection, deceit, sinning. chapter 5 says God made him who had no sin. You notice I had something on representing Jesus that did not have a single sin that we count against him. Peter who walked with Jesus for three years if not more says of him he committed no sin no deceit was found in him. So 2 Corinthians 5 says God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. 
where Jesus literally on the cross says, let me have that. Let me have that. Let me have that. And he chooses, knowing that, to take onto himself and even into his body the sins. And become for us the sin offering before God. Now the story does not end there. But why did Jesus cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he had literally gone throughout all human history, past, present, and future of his death. Hebrews 9 says it was one man who died for all and he did it once. Past, present, and future. And he takes our sin into himself. And this true God-man then stands before the Father and says, may I be their substitute. He fully understands the cry. In the garden he would pray, Father, if there is any other way, everything is possible for you, meaning if there's any other way to save the world. It chose the cross. But not my God. But your will be done. You see, God wanted to save the world he had made, starting with the people made in his image. One day all creation will share our death. And so God says, will you give that to me? Let me take it. Let me take that. And he puts it literally in exchange onto himself. But the story gets better. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 carries on and it says, he says this, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, here we're stepping from judgment into mercy. God takes his righteousness and he says, you need to receive it. You need to take this gift of mercy and love. Now, read what you see. Innocent, made righteous. You see, God made him who had no sin to be sin so that in him, there's this exchange. Martin Luther says the unsearchable grace, the riches of God's grace. So covered in our sin, he pays that which we could not pay for ourselves. Ephesians chapter 2 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It is the, anyone know? It is the, it is the gift of God. It is the gift of God. You couldn't earn it. If you paid for it, it wouldn't be a gift. What do you do with a gift? When, G, when I offered them, I said, Will you take this? Will you receive this? John 3.16 for God so loved the world that he gave. Jesus was the gift that God gave so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Remember this. You cannot earn it. You could not deserve it. Yes, he pays for my sin. And he cancels its power to condemn me. I don't have to simply resort to shame management. 
I can actually freely come and confess to God, I've screwed up. I have actually sinned. I've done the wrong. Isn't there a relief in that honesty? And if I put my faith in him, he offers me his righteousness in its place. And so there we have coming together the justice of God and the mercy of God in the one man, Jesus. But the third point is quite simply this. These words are for us. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They were spoken for us. He is cut off so that we can be included. He is forsaken so that we can be accepted. He is condemned so that we can be forgiven. He is cursed so that we can be saved. The death of Jesus is the greatest demonstration because of God's love. Now the death of Jesus and Peter, for example, makes us a very point, a very clear point. The death of Jesus is atoning, but the death of Jesus is also a good example. He says that he set an example for you in his death that you might follow. But we need to be very clear on this. Some people want to lift out this atonement thought and just go after the death of Jesus as an example. Mahatma Gandhi, for example, he said there's no mystical effect or benefit from the, the death of Jesus. It's just an admirable act of human sacrifice. Tim Keller points out the, the, the flaw in the logic, and he gives an interesting little example. He says, imagine you walking next to a raging river with a friend who suddenly says, I want to show you how much I love you, and throws himself into the raging river and drowns. Would your response be, wow, he really loved me? No, dead right. Some of you can get more responsive. Eh? Don't leave it to the kids all the time. You'd, you'd wonder about his mental state. You're like, like what, what, you know, that, that's a nutter. But if you fell into a raging river and you could not save yourself and you could not swim and your friend dives in and pushes you to safety, but in the act of saving you is drawn into the maelstrom and the current and is washed away and drowned. What do you say then? <laughs> you see, Jesus' death is not a good example if he wasn't saving you from something. This idea that sin is not really a problem, we just have to clear our minds of this idea that we have a shame issue. No, we really have a savior because we have a sin issue. You see, Jesus knows there's not a person on earth who's not caught up in the raging river of evil and sin and who can strong enough or good enough or righteous enough to save themselves. And so he says of our sin, I'll take that. I'll take that. He says of our punishment and of our consequences, I'll take that. And carrying our sin, he carries our penalty. And he says to you in the raging river, you can't save yourself but I can. Trust me. Trust me. A Redeemer will come to Zion to save those who repent of their sins. See, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Us preachers love that idea. Meaning, don't think of yourself as too good to need salvation. This river that has flown since through human history and the human condition, none of us have escaped it. But equally, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Don't think of yourself as too lost, too far away, as having failed too much. There is no sin. There is no shame. There is no guilt. 
There is no act that can stain your name if you will look at the one who hangs on the cross and is forsaken instead of you, is cut off so that you can be received and is rejected so that you can be accepted. Can I lead us in prayer? Lord, we've heard this morning that the essence of sin is substituting ourselves for you and that the essence of this day of our salvation is that you have substituted yourself for us. You've taken our sin and you're willing to give us your righteousness for those who will repent of their sin, for those who will believe. Whoever believes in him should not perish. The stream will not be strong enough to keep you from the salvation that Jesus offers. So maybe you want to pray with me. Lord Jesus, forgive me for putting myself where you ought to be, for deciding to be the God of my own life, the motive of my every action, the wisdom that chooses right and wrong. Forgive me for putting myself where you ought to be. But today I thank you for putting yourself where I ought to be under judgment. And you did it for mercy. Jesus, today, I renounce saving myself and I turn to put my full hope and trust in the God-man who died for me. Won't you send your spirit to make me new as you promised? Dress me in your goodness and in your righteousness. Thank you that as I trust in you by faith, you put yourself in my place yet again. And what you see is your righteousness credited to me. And if you've prayed that prayer, maybe for the first time with real understanding, I would love to chat to you. I brought a couple of these little booklets, by the way. I'd love you to take one away. I'd love to have more conversations. Love to explore what that means in terms of everyday life. See, one of the reasons we believe is that literally he fills each moment with meaning. Love to talk that through with you. So we move to communion, which is an act of remembrance for those who've actively put their faith in Jesus. If you're not quite sure that even for those who put their faith in Jesus, it's a touch point of making sure that I haven't got unfinished business with God there's no rebellion or rubbish that's interfering in the space that I am with God. Paul warns us, take time to think where we stand with the Lord. And so we read this. And I'm going to ask those who are leading communion if they can come forward. The Apostle Paul, who wasn't there at the Last Supper, nevertheless says this. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus... On the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Like literally, his flesh is for you. Paul would write in Romans, say, if, if God is for us, who can be against us? Jesus says, this is my body. It's for you. It's given for you. It's crucified for you. It's surrendered for you. It's broken for you. So do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, 
this cup is the new covenant in my blood. So whenever you do drink it, remember me. Remember me. You see, whenever you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you're proclaiming the truth of Christ's death all the way through until he comes again. It's an action with a meaning and a message that says, I believe that his body is for me and that his blood cleanses me. He is my hope and my salvation. So the worship team's going to lead us. And as you're ready, just come forward to those who are serving. And then with an act of worship and gratitude, proclaim in action the meaning of the day. Amen.